0: You know, the book of Isaiah is a 66-chapter way to say both yes and no, all at the same time. That's the book of Isaiah. A 66-chapter way to say both yes and no, all at once. What I mean is this sweeping, massive, massive, book of prophetic gold written 2700 years before Apple invented their first computer answers a series of questions that either have yes or no as the answer for instance if you were in a conversation with the prophet Isaiah himself it might sound like this Isaiah is Yahweh the God of the Bible is he really worthy of all trust joy Allegiance and obedience? Yes. But Isaiah, you would agree, wouldn't you, that the tragic events of history with all their blood and guts and horror, do these not prove that God is unable or unwilling to control the world? No, it does not mean that. Well, then you're saying that God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of human history. You're saying that he not only ordained but controls every moment of every event, that he governs everything that comes to pass. Is that what you're saying? Yes. But Isaiah, does not the tragic condition of your people and the future exile and the devastation that you yourself predict, does that not prove that the sovereign plan of God for his people has come unraveled? that things have transpired in the world that God either does not know about or cannot control? No, it does not mean that. So you're saying that God has a plan, yes. That none of his promises will fall to the ground, no. That he's gonna win it all in the end, yes. That I have nothing to fear, no. That sin and death will be defeated, absolutely that paradise will be regained, the dead will be raised, the nations will be reached, the kingdom will be rebuilt, and the long-awaited Messiah will return to earth and reign over the nations. Is that what you're saying? Yes, 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 yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. All of that Isaiah says. Because God Himself says that and more in this majestic book of prophecy that has more relevance to your life than you can ever even imagine. And for an undisclosed amount of time, that's where we're going to be. The feast on the menu for our church on the Sunday morning for the foreseeable future will be the book of the prophecy, of Isaiah. Because my job as you know is to as a pastor is to preach the word and shepherd the sheep and to feed the flock and to lead the lambs and to nourish your souls with a banquet of holy scripture and one of the tasty options on the table to do that is none other none other than the prophetic entree known as the book of the prophecy isaiah which is neither short Nor simple, nor easy, nor without massive interpretive challenges. But you see, when has excavating gold ever been easy? When has drilling for oil ever been simple? When has climbing to the top of Mount Everest ever not been a challenge? But you see, oh, the view that you get when you reach the top is worth all of the labor it takes to get there that's the book of Isaiah the Himalayas of Holy Scripture caves of gold, wells of oil, springs of living water fine cuisine fit for a king you remember the saying that we use desperate times call for desperate measures times are desperate aren't they you you know that times are desperate they are urgent and you see in desperate times like these the desperate measure of preaching through the prophet Isaiah is exactly what we need to do and that's exactly what we're going to do chapter by chapter line by line verse by verse and when we're done you will be more prepared to face the world because the world you don't need me to tell you is brutal and it is dark and it is increasingly hostile to the gospel And so what we need then, what we need to face a hostile world is a staggering vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable, sovereign purpose in the universe. And that is precisely what Isaiah gives us. You see, Isaiah does not know the tame, domesticated God of American Christianity. He has no knowledge of the passive therapeutic deity who must bow before the free will of man. No, all he knows and all he proclaims is a God of towering majesty, an infinite sovereign power who governs everything that comes to pass. And see, the thing about Isaiah is that it was written at a time for a people who lived in tumultuous times just like us. It was written during the shifting of entire civilizations, just like now, when the nation in which you live begins to flicker out of existence, just like ours. When the leaders of your country are godless and corrupt, Isaiah was written at a time when the wicked nations of the world were in a global mosh pit for world domination. It was written at a time when the people who were supposed to be God's people were apostate and no longer trembled before the word of God. Well, that's funny because that is exactly, all of that is exactly what we have right now, even as we speak. Isaiah could have been written today and it speaks means, although written 27 centuries before any of us were born, the book of Isaiah is going to feel hauntingly relevant for us. Bottom line, Isaiah is a 37,000-word way to remind us that God has a plan. God will humble the proud. God will save his people, and God is going to win it all in the end so this morning what you're going to get is this this morning what you're going to get is an overview an intro a survey a tour through the himalayan mountain range known as the prophet isaiah the reason i am not jumping into chapter 1 verse 1 right away is because if you haven't noticed isaiah is kind of big and long and this is going to be a big investment for our church and so we need to understand what it is we're dealing with at the outset before we parachute in so here is where we're going this morning I want you to see seven reasons why I'm preaching on Isaiah seven reasons why I'm preaching on Isaiah and why we need it in an age of terror seven reasons why I'm preaching on Isaiah and why we need it in an age of terror before we do that however I want to give you four features of Isaiah four features of Isaiah consider this climbing gear as it were to help us climb the Mount Everest of Isaiah the first feature of the prophet Isaiah is this. First, number one, the grim history behind Isaiah. The grim history behind and leading up to the prophet Isaiah. Because you know, it would be one thing to be called as a prophet when everything was going as planned, when everything was tip top and hunky dory. When your job as a prophet was to pat people on the back and hand out gold stars for good behavior, that would be an incredible gig as a prophet. The problem is there has never been a prophet in the history of the world who had that for his ministry. Now You see, prophets were more like spiritual paramedics who showed up to a crash scene, not only to fix the gaping wounds and stop the bleeding, but to yank people out of their cars before it explodes. The difference between that and Isaiah, however, is that Isaiah showed up to a crash scene only to have the mangled people in the cars reject his help and demand that he leave them alone. How's that for ministry? You see, Isaiah, as mentioned, is one of those men born in the time during the shifting of entire civilizations. The world into which Isaiah was born was a turbulent one. It was a brutal one. It was a violent one with the major political powers of the world all contending for the heavyweight championship belt of the Middle East, which sounds pretty familiar. And to wrap our heads exactly around what Isaiah was called to be and do, we have to encounter two things, historical factors and spiritual factors. Historical factors and spiritual factors. First, the historical. You remember, don't you, that God chose Israel Did he not, to be a channel of blessing to the nations on the earth? When God chose Abraham in Genesis 12, he told him that Israel, get this, would have the staggering responsibility of being an agent of blessing to the ends of the earth. Then in Exodus 19.6, after Egypt, Yahweh told Israel that their job on the planet, get this, was to be a kingdom of priests. That was their calling. Kingdom of priests to the world, which meant their role in history was to mediate and to portray and to display the worth and beauty and value of Yahweh to the nations. It was like a cosmic version of show and tell. Show and tell the glory of Yahweh to the nations. And it was rough at the beginning. You remember judges especially. But eventually that's what they had. Under David and Solomon, this is 300 years before Isaiah, by the way, there were 50-plus years of radiant glory emanating from the land. The nations began to notice. The the news began to spread. The fame of Yahweh began to grow. Everything is going precisely as planned. Until, Until Solomon goes off the deep end with lust and greed and idolatry and drives the kingdom off the cliff, resulting in a shattered kingdom on the brink of civil war. The kingdom splits in two. There was the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah, and the best way to describe the history of these two kingdoms is to simply say this, Judah was bad, Israel was worse. And, and, and Isaiah was called to preach to Judah, the southern kingdom. And the thing about Judah, the southern kingdom, is that in Isaiah's day, from a certain point of view, things looked absolutely incredible. The king Uzziah was good, not great but he was a fantastic economist and he made the the financial, the, the financial situation, the, the economy of Judah absolutely explode, trade was booming, borders were expanding. Isaiah chapter two verse seven says that the land was filled with silver and gold and that there was no end to their treasures. As the song goes, hope was high and life was living, no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted added to that, added to that, for the last 200 years before that, they had been re- relatively unbothered by enemy nations. They had very little trouble from the world powers at the time wanting to invade the country and crush them. And so the impression that the people of Judah had, rather I should say the mistaken impression that the people of Judah had was that Yahweh was pleased. He was not, he was not pleased. There's lots of reasons for that, and you're going to hear some of those, but you see, unbeknownst to Judah and the royal family at the time was that a monster stirred in the east. And that monster's name was Assyria. You see, what Judah didn't realize at the time, as their wine glasses chimed together, was that the only reason why they thrived as long as they did was because Assyria had been weak, but not for long. When Assyria got their act together, they were like a tank plowing through a flower garden. It just destroyed everything in their path they crushed little nations like Judah like insects on the pavement and where they were headed at the time of Isaiah was due west to Israel in the north and to Judah in the south to level them to the ground which they did to Israel in 722 BC and they would do it to Judah if they didn't repent Isaiah's job was to preach to Judah and to call them to repentance before it was too late. Which brings us to the spiritual factors. The spiritual factors, because the southern kingdom, in the southern kingdom, things were less than great. Less than great. You see, but the the issue is, is that if you didn't ask too many questions and you didn't probe too deep, things actually kinda looked fine on the surface. The temple was busy. They sang their songs. They offered their sacrifices. They had many priests in full-time ministry. They prayed their prayers. They did their thing. They celebrated the feast. Economically, they were at the top of their game. Surely, surely Yahweh must be pleased. And yet all of it was an absolute sham. Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen says that their worship was fake and hypocritical. They drew new with their, with their lips to be sure. But their hearts were far away. Chapter 1 says that Yahweh hated their sacrifices. He hated them. He told them, stop bringing them. I don't want them anymore. God called their incense an abomination to him. That is the strongest term of disgust in the Hebrew language. It's an abomination. I don't want this. And then three times, chapter 5, 28, and 56, Isaiah rebukes them for their drunkenness. Three times, alcohol abuse was rampant and all over the land. Sexual sins spread throughout the country like a plague. They were so immoral and so wicked that in chapter 1, verse 15, Yahweh called them Sodom and Gomorrah, the most wicked cities in history. Even, even the prophet Jeremiah got it on the action. He said in chapter 6, verse 15, he said, the people of Judah don't even know how to blush anymore. Uh, we're here. This is today. There's so much idolatry in Jerusalem that in chapter 1, verse 21, pardon my Hebrew, but God called the city a whore. The leaders were godless politicians who loved bribes, and payoffs and grifts. And chapter 57, verse 5, even reveals that King Ahaz, one of the worst kings in Judah's history, even sanctioned the burning of children in the fire as an offering to Molech, this, this horrible god of the Canaanites, bloodthirsty god. I could go on and on and on. You get the idea. Bottom line, it, just, it wasn't just that the people of Judah were kind of naughty. It's that they did not love Yahweh as the treasure of their souls. And so you see it, right? Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet not when the people were enthralled with God, not when the people loved God, not when they were thirsty for God, not when they were hungry for holiness, but rather when the people had been long in disobedience and the volcano of God's judgment was about to blow. And you could feel it, can't you? According to the sovereign decree of God, you also live in one of the most tumultuous times in history, don't you? Men demand access to female bathrooms, and it is granted. Olympians try to change their gender with a little surgery in a photo shoot, and they are hailed as courageous heroes. Planned Parenthood executives haggle over aborted baby parts over dinner. And yet the ones who are in trouble are the ones who expose their atrocities. Sooner or later, mark my words, the gospel is going to be considered hate speech and you might go to jail. That's a lonely and dangerous road. And you see, that is exactly why I am preaching on the prophet Isaiah, because he also, he also walked down that lonely and dangerous path of gospel proclamation, which means he has something to say to us in a very dangerous and unstable 21st century. And that brings us to feature number two. Grappling hook number two that helps us scale the Mount Everest But the prophet Isaiah. Number two, the identity and ministry of Isaiah. The identity and ministry of Isaiah. Because you understand, if you know anything about the prophets, you understand that few people had lives more interesting than the prophets. And interesting is is an understatement. To be called as a prophet, you understand, made you a mouthpiece of the living God. And included in your job oftentimes came with all sorts of exciting or dangerous or humiliating or really vulnerable and awkward things that God called you to do. Just ask Isaiah, who had to walk around for a while with half a beard. He had to lay on one side for every day for like two and a half years. And so this was a very strange thing to be a prophet. Like the military, you were the prophet of another, namely God. And when you were a prophet, you did what he said, you went where he said, you said what he said, and you just let the chips fall where they may. It did not matter if the people repented or if they killed you, you were called to be faithful to preach what God gave you to preach. And for almost 60 years of ministry, that is exactly what Isaiah did. Isaiah was called, he was called to be a prophet around 735, around 735 BC, again, 200 plus years after King David. Born in Jerusalem in 760 BC, the only thing we really know about him is the name of his dad, which he tells us in chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, Ven Amotz, the son of Amos. That's it. That's all we know. There are rumors, however. Rumors among the rabbis that his dad worked in the court of the king that he was an employee of the kingdom. And maybe even that his family, Isaiah's family, was related to one of the past kings, King Amaziah, which means Isaiah went to family reunions with the royal family itself. And this would explain, could explain why Isaiah had such easy face to face access to kings, that he could address them so easily. He, maybe he was family with them, and yet that's a little awkward because much of his ministry consisted in standing in harsh opposition to the court and rebuking kings to their face in the sharpest possible terms. Isaiah's name in Hebrew literally means Yahweh is salvation. So his name means, Yahweh is salvation, which is ironic because that was the theme of his preaching for 50, almost 60 years. Yahweh and Yahweh alone is salvation and he can and must be trusted. Isaiah had a wife. And according to chapter 8, verse 3, she also was a prophetess. And this power couple... Had two sons, two sons that we know of, and get a load of this. God made them, made them name their sons. Son number one, Shear Yashuv. Son number two, Maher Shalal hashbaz Hello, welcome to my home. Here is Shear Yashuv. Here is Maher Shalal hashbaz You know what their name means? Shear Yashuv, only a remnant shall return. Maher shalal chashbaz, swift to the plunder, speedy to the prey. What's the point? The point is, is that the names of their children predicted doom and destruction for the people. God made them name their kids in which were contained object lessons that would describe the future in inevitable destruction of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. I do not know how that went for the Isaiah's kids in the schoolyard growing up, but nevertheless, that was the call to be a prophet. Everything was on the altar. And so like his contemporary buddy Micah, Isaiah began to preach as the shadow of Assyria fell onto the land and the nation tottered to its grave. These are difficult days. These are difficult days to be a prophet. Especially because the people were in no mood to hear at all what Isaiah had to say. I mean, does that sound familiar like today? In fact, in fact, get this. In chapter 6, Yahweh revealed to Isaiah, get this, that he would have zero converts to his preaching. I'm calling you to preach. By the way, no one will believe. Go to work. He would receive only opposition, only obstinance, only defiance, only rebellion, only unbelief. He would be, like us, a sheep in the midst of wolves. His calling was to stick his hand in the blender of a godless nation and just be willing to be chewed up in the process. Which explains why, doesn't it? Why Yahweh showed him his holiness, in chapter 6, do you remember that? Isaiah, God gives Isaiah this paralyzing glimpse of his majesty. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw Adonai sitting on a throne, which was lofty and exalted, and his robes were filling the palace. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And this one called out to this one and said, Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Tzavaot. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All of the earth is full of his glory. And the pillars of the thresholds trembled because of the voice of the one who called, and the temple was filled with smoke. The question is why? Why did God show Isaiah that? What was the point? What was the meaning of that? Why? Because I'll tell you why. It's because the only thing that could reinforce his heart with bulletproof steel and give him lion-hearted courage to preach to a defiant nation for 50 years was a soul-unraveling glimpse of the holiness of God. And that's exactly the same with you. In 100% seriousness, part of what's driving me to preach on Isaiah, do something so impractical, like spending the next three, possibly five years preaching through the prophet Isaiah, is because of the towering majesty of God contained inside. You you understand, our courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile hostile culture is only as strong as our view of God is deep our willingness to speak and suffer for the gospel profoundly depends on if we have a little God or if we have Isaiah's God. And I want you to see about God, what Isaiah saw about God, because what Isaiah saw about God unleashed one of the most effective mysteries, ministries in the history of the world. 2,700 years later, we're still talking about him. Because here you have to understand, if all the books of the Bible are like the Himalayas, Isaiah is like Mount Everest. One writer says this about the man Isaiah. He says, in all her history, Israel produced few figures of greater stature than Isaiah. Called to the prophetic office for 50 years, he towered over the contemporary scene. And though perhaps few in his day realized it more than any other individual, he guided the nation through her hour of tragedy and despair though he's dead, Isaiah still speaks, and through the words on the page, he will guide us and he will guide our church through our own global crises that are unfolding even as we speak. You see, even though we are not prophets and none of us will ever be prophets, we can still live prophetically by proclaiming the same matchless God that Isaiah proclaimed, can we not? Which he did for decades until he died around 680 BC, which rumor has it that he died by being sawn in half lengthwise by the King Manasseh. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. Whether death by martyrdom or death by age, even the day of Isaiah's death was determined. And until that day, he was invincible. And at this moment, he waits and he waits and he worships in heaven for the great day of resurrection and for his place in the Messiah's kingdom for which he gave his entire life to promote. The question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give whatever life you have left, in whatever way that you can, be it big or small, to devote the rest of your life to the proclamation of the Messiah and his kingdom? Do you understand that you exist for the imperial majesty of Jesus Christ and for the glory of his invincible sovereign empire? You understand, this man gave everything. He gave everything for Yahweh, and he paid an excruciating, if not the ultimate, price to do so. He was willing to go naked and be hated and look like a fool and give his kids ridiculous names and, and say really hard things to a rebellious people. And we sometimes are unwilling even to endure even a little bit of histo- hostility for the gospel. Take heart, little flock. Isaiah's God is your God, and you don't have to be afraid. Feature number three. Feature number three, grappling hook, as it were. Number three of the prophet Isaiah as we climb to understand the Himalayas of Isaiah. Number three, the theology of Isaiah. The theology of Isaiah, which is nothing short of staggering and profound. You see, one of the most helpful things to do as you encounter, begin the study of a book, is to simply ask the question, what is its theology? Well, what theology does this book, in particular, contribute to our understanding of the Bible? What are the doctrines contained in this book? You need to ask the question, how does this book, in particular, contribute to our understanding of God, Of his plan of salvation of the Messiah how the world is going to end and let me just simply say that when it comes to theology of Isaiah it is theology caviar this is platinum this is this is gourmet this is deluxe this is first class this is the big leagues of biblical theology you see you you don't simply read a book like Isaiah and then just go on about your day no this is an encounter This is something, to read Isaiah is to be like little ants at the foot of Mount Everest, just gaping up at the towering majesty that lies before us. One writer says this about the theology of Isaiah. Listen very carefully. He says, of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. Its literary grandeur is unequaled. Its scope is unparalleled. The breadth of its view of God is unmatched. In so many ways, it is a book of superlatives. No wonder I like it so much. Thus, it is no wonder that Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And along with Psalms and Deuteronomy, one of the most frequently cited of all Old Testament books, Isaiah comes to us as a word from the living God, a revelation of the inevitable conflict between divine glory and human pride and of the self-destruction which pride must bring. Get this, to read the book with the open eyes of the soul is to see oneself all too clearly but also to see a God whose holiness is made irresistible by his love. Well, I'm intrigued. This is something. This is what we need, isn't it? And although there are dozens, dozens of theological contributions that Isaiah makes to our understanding of the Bible, there are three in particular that deserve honorable mention, three doctrines in Isaiah that deserve honorable mention. Number one, the doctrine of God. The doctrine of god if you want to know who god is read isaiah son of amos in fact more than any other biblical writer isaiah clobbers us with the coma inducing vision of the majesty of god he loved many things about god one of the things he loved about god was yah was god as creator yahweh as the creator it is everywhere in isaiah Chapter 40, verse 26, he created the stars, it says. All 200 billion trillion stars. And the text goes on to say he gave names to them. There are enough names for 200 million trillion stars? Verse 26 goes on to say that from the abundance of his strength and the might of his power, none of them are missing. Chapter 42, five says that he caused the entire universe to exist and the endless stretches of space that mankind will never ever see. And if if you can accept it, if you can accept what he says, Chapter 45, verse 7, probably the most jarring verse in the entirety of the Bible, not even kidding. God says, I am the one who forms light. I am the one who creates darkness. I am the one who makes peace. And I am the one, Boré Ra. I am the one who creates evil. I, Yahweh, alone am the one who does all these things. The book of Isaiah is clear. Yahweh is creator. By by the way, we'll get to that verse and what it means one day. Yahweh is the creator. And you know why that matters, right? You know why it matters. The practical ramifications of the fact that God is creator. If he is the creator, he is also the sustainer. And if he is the sustainer, he is sovereign over all things. And if he is sovereign, that means that he can and must be trusted I want you to take right now the struggles, the anxieties, the concerns, the burdens, the worries that are most prominent in your mind even as we sit here and I want you to juxtapose those over the fact that Yahweh is the sovereign, supreme, sustaining God who governs everything that comes to pass. Do you trust him? Do you trust him that he rules the nation? he does? Do you trust him to do what he does best, which is rule the universe with absolute ease? Because speaking of the sovereignty of God, that also fills the pages of Isaiah. No one other than Christ had a more profound sense of the sovereignty of God than did Isaiah, son of Amos. And it's everywhere throughout the book. And you remember what Tommy read at the beginning, Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read part of that again. Who Holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. Who determined the heavens with a span? Who calculated the dust of the earth? Who weighed the mountains in a balance? Who weighed the hills in a pair of scales? Who advised him and taught him and gave him understanding and taught him in the path of justice? Anyone? Who taught him knowledge and who made known to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and like a speck of dust on a pair of scales. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Whom? To whom shall you compare God? And, And what likeness will you compare to him? Do you not know? Have you not heard Was it not declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He is the one who sits above the circle of the earth and all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and he spreads them out like a tent in which to dwell. He is the one who brings rulers to nothing. He makes judges of the earth meaningless. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh, alohe olam, the God of eternity, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not become weary. He does not become tired. There is no end to his understanding. The question that people fail to ask about Isaiah chapter 40 is, why is that even there? Why is God doing that? Why, why is he flashing his credentials and displaying his sovereignty, displaying his supremacy? Why is that even there? And the answer is, get this now, is so very carefully, this is an example of the sovereignty of God in Isaiah. The answer is, Isaiah is comforting his people 120 years in the future, in the midst of an exile that hadn't even happened yet. Does that make sense? Chapter 40 is written to a future generation of Jews, not even born yet, to sustain them in the midst of a Babylonian captivity that wouldn't happen for another 120 years. That is astonishing. The entire truthfulness of the Bible proved by chapter 40. And that's not all, get a load of this. In chapter 45, God names by name a Persian king named Cyrus. And that Cyrus would release the Jewish people to allow them to go back to Israel. Well, that's interesting because Cyrus wouldn't come on the scene of history for another 200 years. You understand the Almighty is not some passive mushball that just allows things to happen and then simply makes the best of it? No, including sin and evil, God ordained and controls every moment that comes to pass. God is not some celestial wimp imprisoned by the resistance of man. The precious free will of human beings is a house of cards next to the omnipotent, sovereign power of the Holy One of Israel. And speaking of holiness, far, no one, no one gave us a greater sense of the holiness of God than did Isaiah 38 times. Isaiah calls Yahweh Kadosh, the Holy One, far more than any other writer in the entirety of the Bible. And over the next few months and years... We're going to know exactly what the holiness of God is. Isaiah will help us. Isaiah will help us regain our sense of the transcendence of God. Put it this way, what we need to sustain us in a culture like this is that we need a little bit of theological PTSD that will make us tremble with delight and give us unflinching courage in a world of terror. Theological contribution number two. Isaiah talks to us a lot about God, but he also talks to us about the doctrine of salvation. He helps us understand salvation. In other words, through the pen of Isaiah, God unfolds a riveting theology of salvation. Get this, at the center of which is a prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ 700 years before it ever even came to pass. Isaiah chapter 53, this is what settled the issue for me that I wanted to spend the rest of my life preaching the Bible. This, this just was an absolute deal breaker. Here's what I read. Truly our sufferings he carried, our sorrows he bore them, but we esteemed him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep went astray, each of us turned to his own way, but Yahweh caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And last but not least, Isaiah is a book of staggering eschatology In other words, get this, contained in the book of Isaiah are the cohesive blueprints for how the world is going to end. All of that, all that is contained within this book, which means when we're done with Isaiah in the year 2035, you will not only understand God's plan for the future, it will be the future! (laughs) But the point is this, in knowing his plan, in knowing his plan for the future, you will have the courage you need for the present. Feature number four. Feature number four the prophet Isaiah, the interpretive key of Isaiah. The interpretive key to Isaiah. We've got to talk about hermeneutics here. Because let's face it, this is not an easy book by any stretch of the imagination to read, to study, to preach. This is going to be without question. I need you to pray for me on this. This is going to be without question the, most, the, the biggest preaching challenge of the entirety of my life. And to be totally honest, it will probably be the biggest listening challenge of the entirety of your life. And the reason for that, the reason is because Isaiah is like a prophetic kaleidoscope of time and theology and all sorts of moving parts converging together. And sometimes it's hard to make heads or tails as to the who or what or when or why this is even in the Bible. You understand, reading the book of Isaiah can be a very disorienting and dizzying experience. Having said that, however, it's not impossible to understand. By no means. It will be understood. It will be enjoyed. It will be applied by us. But you see, here's the thing you have to understand. Just like board games, board games come with the rules of how to play the game inside the box. By the way, the... Greatest game players in the world are in this, in this congregation, Tammy Monty and the Harrises. So if you want to learn how to play games, they will teach you. They, they will get what I'm talking about. Just like board games come with the rules of how to play inside the box, Isaiah also comes with the rules for how to interpret it inside the box. You see, the interpretive key, listen very carefully, the interpretive key to this massive mammoth 66 chapter book of mystery is to understand that there are three periods of time that Isaiah addresses, three periods of time that Isaiah talks about. It's very simple, there is the past, there is the present, and there's the future. Past, present, future. Well, that's easy enough. Sometimes Isaiah preaches on the past. And get this, when he does, it's obvious and easy to tell. Using past tense verbs, he describes events that happened in the past in biblical history, like creation, like the calling of Abraham, like the deliverance from the Exodus, and that's easy. We get that. Other times, Isaiah preaches on the present. Get this. Using present tense verbs, he speaks on contemporary issues to his day. Even if you would have no idea what he's talking about, it's something that's happening in that moment. He describes events and cities and kings and really messy situations that needed the redemptive power and grace of God me so far, but sometimes, and this is the hardest part about Isaiah, but sometimes, a lot of times, he preaches on the future, on the future, revealing what the future would be and what the end of history was going to be. The challenging part is figuring out how far into the future about which he speaks. And there are four stages of the future Isaiah describes. This will go really fast. Four stages of... The future Isaiah describes. If you've got your notes, you can see them in there. There is the near future. There is the distant future. There is the far distant future. And there is the eternal state. The near future, distant future, far distant future, and the eternal state. By near future, I mean that Isaiah predicted events that would be fulfilled after he was dead, but before the New Testament like the fall of assyria like the fall of babylon like the coming of cyrus do you see but then there's also the distant future that is Events, Isaiah predicts, that would be filled in the times of the New Testament, roughly the year 0 to 33, like the ministry of John the Baptist, like the arrival of Christ, like the virgin birth, like the crucifixion, like the resurrection of the Messiah. It's all there in the book of Isaiah. But you see also, also, there is the far distant future. Isaiah predicts events, the fulfillment of which we have not yet seen. These are things still yet to come. Like the kingdom... Not to mention the crushing of Satan, the great resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. All of that is revealed in Isaiah. And then finally, there is the eternal state. The eternal state, which comes after the kingdom. When God will make a new heavens and a new earth, death will be destroyed, sin will be no more, and we will live, as they say, happily ever after. I'm loath to skip what I want to say, but for the sake of time, let me give you seven reasons why I'm preaching through Isaiah. Seven reasons why I'm preaching through Isaiah. I'm preaching through Isaiah, Christ's community, for its theological value. For its theological value. These aren't in your notes, this is for free. Like I said earlier, the simple greatest contribution that Isaiah has to, has to the Bible and to your lives is a towering view of the sovereignty and the supremacy and the majesty of God. And that is helpful for us. Gone over are the days of Hallmark card theology. We need a sovereign God. We need to know that in God's universe, there are no coincidences. There's nothing random. There's no such thing as luck or chance. There is only God and he governs everything that comes to pass. Reason number two, I'm preaching through the book of Isaiah because with Isaiah, you get two for the price of one. Meaning you you not only understand the old Testament, you understand the new Testament as well. You get Isaiah, you get your Bible. That's how sweeping it is. It's worth reading and studying and preaching because in the New Testament, Isaiah was referred to more than any other prophet, which means, which means what the New Testament says in many ways is rooted in and flows from the book of Isaiah. If you care about what the New Testament says, you should care about what Isaiah says. Number three, I am preaching on the book of Isaiah because what it does is give us a theology of politics politics. What I mean is not that Isaiah tells us what party to belong to or who to vote for, but it does help us view politics and politicians through a profoundly theological lens god is the one who raises up politicians he is the one who removes politicians they are where they are and they stay where they are and they are removed from where they are because god is the one who does all of those things in other words isaiah is a jolting reminder to us that we should neither fear the government nor unnecessarily trust the government but rather the one who rules and trusts the one who rules and governs the government number four I'm preaching on Isaiah because if there is any book that will help us not cower in fear at the culture, it is the prophet Isaiah. Some people today are so angry and fearful at the culture or public schools or social media as if they were the ultimate evil in the world. They're not. There's some ugly things happening, no one can deny. But we have to remember that the biggest problem in the world is not outside of us it is inside of us lurking in our very hearts and yet and yet the solution isaiah gives for both the evil out there and in here is the great messiah to come who has come and who will come again number five I'm preaching on Isaiah because if there is any book similar to number four, if there is any book that should inspire bulletproof courage to proclaim the gospel that wants you silent, it is the book of Isaiah. And how Isaiah gives you that courage is through a gargantuan vision of the glory of God. Bottom line, what Isaiah gives us is a theology that will help you fear God instead of fear man. Number six. I'm preaching on Isaiah because I want you to learn eschatology. I want you to learn this stuff, the study of the the doctrine of the end times. I want you to know this. Around 27% of the Bible is prophecy, which means God wants you to know this stuff. Because the more you know it, the more equipped you will be to make a splash in the world for the glory of Christ and the Great Commission. And speaking of Christ, number seven, I'm preaching on Isaiah because I want the mouth of your soul to water for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's all over in the book of Isaiah. It's everywhere. Chapter two, verses one through five, chapter seven, chapter nine, chapter 11. Chapter 42, chapter 48, chapter 52 and 53, chapter 61. It is everywhere, riveting portrayals of the glory and the majesty and the supremacy and the sovereignty and the saving power and redemptive achievements of the Lord Jesus Christ. My greatest passion for you, all I want for you is that you would see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is and Isaiah is the means to get there. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the Himalayas are massive. There's so much elevation to climb, so many things to see. We can't take it all in, and the same as with this book, I know it, I'm sure of it. And I'm asking for help, O Lord, in the next months and years of our life as a church. As we invest our very lives and souls into this book, I pray that you would sustain us. That you would use this book strategically, Lord. I am persuaded that even if this book doesn't say one thing about our particular struggles directly, this book, O Lord, will give us the theological infrastructure that we need to handle anything in our lives. And so I'm asking for that. I'm asking for that. Help us, O Lord, help us to cling to you, to hope in you, to see you the way Isaiah saw you, sovereign and supreme, matchless and unrivaled, and who governs everything that comes to pass. And it's in your matchless name that we pray.